how much of that is based on opinion of one person with another person and how much of it is really fact-based if you will performance-based when I when I when I try to do my search I'm asking a colleague who works in that institution so I can find out how they are doing in that institution for all the patients they take care of so it's it's based on a factual observation of that particular surgeon in that institution so that's really the only way we don't have a system and maybe one day we can create a system to provide a higher degree of patient safety our patients need to be knowledgeable as to is operating on them. It's not just where you went to school. Let's face it. Let's say you went to Harvard, perfect example. Well, guess what? It's great school, difficult to get in, very high ranking, but is the surgeon who gets trained there is gonna come out as the best? Not necessarily. The reason is Harvard may have a lot of people who are fellows working there, so they allow the lower grade surgeons, the residents do less. So they may not have as much opportunity. Awesome. We are live with another episode of Adversity Kings. We have our first medical professional episode with Dr. Reza Demagami, and he specializes in training next generation of da Vinci robotic surgeons. Renowned general surgeon is ranked the highest volume robotic general surgeon in Illinois and is on staff at Silver Cross Hospital. Uh, he has training for 30 years now with renowned minimally invasive surgery pioneer, Sir Alfred Kusheri. That's correct. Kusheri in Dundee, Scotland. And Dr. Reza Gamagami already had a reputation as a respected surgeon on staff at Silver Cross Hospital in New Lenox, which I believe is in Illinois. That's correct. And he also attended a conference on the Da Vinci Robotic Surgical System in San Diego in 2012. Uh, very impressed with Dr. Gamagami, the possibilities he convinced Silver Cross administrators that Da Vinci Robotic assisted surgery was the future shortly afterwards. And this is obviously 12 years ago, the Midwest Institute for Robotic Surgery at Silver Cross was born. So I believe we're going on 12 years then of the birth of robotic surgery at Silver Cross, correct? That's correct. So I'm very excited to dive into this episode, even though Dave and I have both agreed that we may we may have to have you share with the audience and ourselves some of the terminology or medical jargon you might use that we're just not gonna understand. No, that's, that's so, totally understandable. So, um, you know, when first and foremost, I'm a surgeon that deals with the gastrointestinal tract. So if you have problems with your gallbladders, your liver, pancreas, colon, abdominal wall hernias. In fact, uh, you know, I know you're very familiar with uh, your industry and a lot of people in your industry actually um, work doing hard work, uh, you know, whether it's electricians or plumbers or any that type that have hernias. So those, that's a very common procedure. Mm -hmm. And likewise, people having gallbladder issues, needing gallbladder surgery. So, you know, back um, 12 years ago um, at Silver Cross Hospital, which is in New Lenox, 80% of the surgeries for hernias, um, for um, groin hernias, abdominal hernias, and colon surgeries, say for cancer or for conditions like inflammation, diverticulitis, were being done open. And uh, the laparoscopy, which is making little tiny incisions and just putting little ports inside your abdomen to do the surgery was created for general surgeons 30 years ago. But it was really, really difficult 
to do that surgery because it's almost like doing putting chopsticks and trying to do operation. Whereas the robotic Da Vinci system is basically putting, instead of chopsticks in, in, inside of an abdomen, you actually use tools that have the ability to articulate just like your hands. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like having two tiny hands inside the abdomen and doing milli-invasive surgery. So we went from cutting 80 people, 80% 80 of the people open, to now 90% getting milli-invasive surgery. So patients obviously want smaller incisions, they have quicker recovery, they have less pain, and guess what? In the work industry, they wanna get back to work sooner. Instead of being laid off for six weeks, they're back to work in two weeks. And actually, employers like that because when you lose someone in your industry or your work environment, and they're out for six weeks, you're losing revenue. You're losing the opportunity Production. to serve your, yes, your clientele. So this, this has really revolutionized. When it started 12 years ago, nobody was really excited. Mm -hmm but I kind of saw the value that this is gonna be able to help us do things that we couldn't otherwise do. So that was the transformation. And, and now I'm happy to say a lot of surgeons are getting on the bandwagon on, on getting trained and becoming more familiar with this technology. So how are you operating? Is, are you doing it behind a mouse? You're looking into a screen or are you like, is it what you see on TV where so, it likes those robotic arms? So, so actually, that's a very good point. So we put these little cannulas, we put the instruments, and we connect the machine to each of the four arms. There are four arms. One is a camera, my left hand, right hand, and another extra arm to help me grasp and retract. And then I go and sit down on a console. It's just like sitting in a car, and I put my hands in a glove, and I can see inside the screen, which is the screen showing me inside the abdomen, which is, by the way, magnified 10 times. And the nice other beautiful part about it is three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. So I see everything in 3D, and I use my hands to manipulate the intestine, the bowels, the colon, the uh, gallbladder, and do the procedure necessary to perform the function necessary. So it's a, the robotic system is an interface between me and the patient, the patient literally can be, um, actually it's usually about nine feet away and I'm doing this surgery. So this is an interesting concept. This concept was created by the US military 20 years, 30 years ago, because what they wanted to do is when the soldiers get injured on the field, they don't want to have the surgeons right on the field because obviously there was the risk of them being killed. Mm. So they put them in these tents, connect the robots, and the surgeon, say from Washington DC, could sit in the robot and operate. So you can actually do remote surgery. I could be at home, I can have one of my assistants pull all the ports in, and I can do the surgery remotely from my house. But of course, we're not doing that right now, but that technology has been shown that it can be done. And it exists today. And it exists today, in fact. It's incredible. The, and, and, and in fact, you might say, well, what's the application? Perfect example. Let's say you're a surgeon, and you're a surgeon in a small rural town, say 100 miles away from the nearest hospital. But as a surgeon, you know how to put these ports in a patient. You can connect a robot, and then you call on the phone, your big famous surgeon in a university or a tertiary mm -hmm. center or a robotic center, he'll get on the console, and he'll start remotely by connections through the Wi-Fi system and start operating 
and you as a surgeon will be ne next to the patient and then once it's finished, you take everything up and sew up the patient. This has actually been done. So in Canada, they demonstrated surgeons can do complex surgeries remotely. So patients don't have to be transported to a big city. They don't have to leave their towns. Most people like to get their surgeries where they live. They don't want to be traveling if they don't have to. This is incredible. It gives them access to some of the top surgeons in the world. That's so correct. So somebody wants Dr. Gamagami, but you live an hour and 45 minutes remote in a rural area, go to your local hospital and you can have Dr. Gamagami operate on you. That's the future. It, the technology is there. It has been demonstrated that it can be done. But right now, obviously for medical permits. legal reasons, yeah. we still are in the hospital with our systems doing it. But this technology has been applied. So I think, you know, um, I don't know if you know this, but the workforce for general surgeons like me is decreasing. Uh, well, um, less number of people are going into medicine, less are going to surgery, and our pa pa patient population is aging, so the demand is increasing. So the demand and the supply curve are not really concordant right now. So there is gonna be a time, perhaps in five, 10 years time, where we're not gonna have surgeons everywhere available. So I think when, when that situation arises where you need specialty care, then, then I think that you know, we're gonna be able to expand doing these remote surgeries. But right now, we're stuck in our hospital doing these uh, complex surgeries now um, and providing patients with better outcomes. And patients do have better outcomes when you make little incisions on them instead of big ones. I have a few friends that are orthopedic surgeons, and I know one of the biggest things that they do is they don't like to do extreme sports like water skiing, jet skiing, boating, anything, because they fear injury. They fear that they are going to have shaky hands. So these robotics, if your hands aren't, if you have a little bit shaky, does a computer compensate for that? And Because you're looking at a, at a screen that's magnified 10 times, right? And this is more precise. So could that extend a surgeon's career as they age? That's an excellent question. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, not so long ago, I had to do this open operation. And as you know, most of our patients and people in the United States have grown in size. So obesity has become a big problem. Uh, 30 years ago, US obesity rate was 20%. And that's 60. So it's well over 50%. Exactly. So we're operating on bigger people. So with a robot, you can operate on bigger people much easier. And when I was doing that open operation, by the end of the day, I was exhausted. And I felt, oh my God, there's just no way I could possibly do this on another day. You're absolutely right. It has extended the longevity of surgeons like me. I'm, I'm well past 60 now. And I have plans, you know, probably to go another 10 to 20 years. And I think the robot technology allows us to extend our lifespan. And you're right. And another good point you made about, you must have read about this issue of shakes. In fact, the robot has a system. So let's say you got a surgeon, he's got a really bad shake, or he had too much coffee in the morning because he's excited. In fact, the robot will take the shake away. So it has a system to make it look like you're the coolest uh, and really the like best uh, precise surgeon, yeah. even though half the time you might be shaking. Mind you, if you're having shakes like you're having seizures, it's not gonna do much for that. But 
If you have a tremor going on, it actually controls that. Mm, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it is. Now, before we dive completely into all of this, you know, phenomenal medical advice, I always like to go to like the point of origin of, of you. So where were you born and raised? So I was born in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. So my dad was very much into medicine, academia. So they were, you know, in France. I grew up uh, in France, Switzerland, the first five years. So my first language is actually French. And then we moved to Iran for about eight years. And then in um, 1979, this is many years ago, there was a huge revolution in Iran where um, the radical Islamists took over. And we actually migrated to United States because we were not part of that concept um, of extremism. And, uh, and my father came here and basically went through all the process of uh, getting his degree again because he was already practicing, but he had to be U.S. certified. So he went back to school. He went back to residency. And when we came here, it's kind of an interesting story because... Um, uh, we were living very well as kids and we were very lucky that we were extremely privileged. But when the revolution occurred, uh, my parents had to live, uh, leave the country under very extreme circumstances. So when we came to the United States, we actually came penniless. So we had no money. And uh, we actually had to borrow money from my uncle who was an engineer here in the United States and we were in a rental uh, for a while uh, until my dad was taking exams. And my brother and I, uh, we had studied hard enough that we were able to get to the state school at that time, UCLA. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were very fortunate. Those days, um, tuition was like only a couple of thousand dollars a year. And uh, we were able to afford that. So during summers, we would work. Um, and we would also work while we went to What'd school. What did you do for work in the summer? Uh, we actually, my brother and I, uh, we worked for my uncle. He had a, he had started a factory making machinery for hydraulic systems for checking airplanes mm. and bomb loaders uh, for the airplanes. And my brother and I, we, he's a year younger, so we came here together and we would work uh, during summers and after school and after college, we would uh, work in his factory. Our job, actually, I never forget, it was actually drilling holes and creating rivets so then you can put the bolts on. And it was extremely hard because these were extremely hard steel metals in huge machinery. And we we're doing all of it manually. They didn't have the standardized machines that now you can you yeah. know, create the rivets, put the knot in. It was all manual. And I remember being extremely tired, extremely sweaty, extremely dirty with blisters going home every night thinking, there's no way I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is yeah. really hard work. Yeah. And uh, that was actually the impetus for us to kind of say, we better study and get really good grades because getting to medical school is so hard. So anyway, we ended up getting to medical schools and graduating and, and obviously finding our ways in medicine. And you went to Washington University for your residency? So I went to Washington, D.C. for medical school. Then we applied. Uh, once you finish, you decide what you want to do. You want to do pediatrics. You want to do medicine. You want to do surgery. So we decided, I decided, my brother and I decided we want to do surgery uh, and apply to UCSD, University of California in San Diego. And then uh, once I finished, uh, my chairman really liked me and said, hey, you want to stay in university system and be a 
you know, teach in the university system and teach residents. I said, sure, that sounds pretty exciting. Um, and then obviously stayed there, got married, and they'll have children. And, uh, uh, and at that time, um, uh, it seemed logical to come to the Midwest to raise family. Yeah. And there's some really, you know, uh, I think California is probably not the best place to raise kids. So here, uh, moved to here and now my three boys and there are two of them are grown and obviously independently working and one is going to finish high school. So it's been a, it's been a journey, um, quite remarkable for family and also career wise. Now, how long did it take you to get through the college process from you start college, your medical pursuits, and then all the way up into the point where you're completing and you actually get, you receive your MD? Well, MD, so, you know, there's not very much you can do just with an MD. So you do your four years of college, and then you do four years of uh, medical school, you become an MD, but then you have to decide, what do I want to do? Do I want to do emergency medicine? Do I want to do family practice? Do I want to do surgery? So depending on what you want to do. So if you want to become, let's say, family practice, you might have to go another three or four years. If you want to do surgery, you may have to do five or six years. If you want to do orthopedic surgery, you got to do maybe six, maybe seven years. If you want to do neurosurgery, you know, operating on the brain, then that's nine years. So you're going to look, oh my God, four plus four plus nine. And those are years that you're really not really getting paid much. Uh, so by the time most of us are done, we're either 30 or 35 years old and we're just starting our lives. And most of us, when we're starting our lives, we have about two to $300,000 in loans for education and for just- Life. Life. Yeah. That was back then. Now I think um, you go through four years of medical school, four years of regular you know, school, maybe another three, four years in whatever specialty field you go into, do your residency, do all that, you're coming out half a million, $700,000 in debt. Yes, yeah. that's very common. Yeah. That's very common. So most people starting their careers in medicine, um, they started very late and they all come out with, um, you're absolutely right, half a million uh, debt is not uncommon. Can you do your residency in another country where it might be cheaper? Could I could I go get a degree? Because I think I think it's very obvious. I I will notice if when I'm seeking out medical advice, I don't notice a lot of American doctors. You know what I mean? So I, I ask myself, and I've never really got to sat down and ask, what's it like acquiring that degree and all of that schooling? I wonder what the price comparison is if if you can do it in another country. So first of all, uh, you can do it in another country uh, doing residency. But if you want to come back to United States and practice in United States, you actually they have to go through, let's say you did your residency, say in South America, in Argentina. If you come back and you want to practice here, first you've got to take some tests and the exams are extremely difficult and the pass rate is very low. Once you finish that, then you are required to actually go and do another residency. Let's say you did your residency and you're a surgeon and you've already you know, finish your five, six years in your own country, say Argentina. If you come here, you've got to do five or six years of general surgery residency and get the U.S. general surgery residency certificate. So you made a point about, you've seen some doctors, they're not quite like the 
natives and they've got, you know, they might be Indian. So in fact, in India, uh, they have a lot of great surgeons, great doctors. They come to United States and they actually take redo. the exams wow. and redo everything and they get incorporated. The other thing that most people may not do and one of the benefits of being a US trained surgeon, I'm trained in the US, I went to England, uh, I went to Scotland, I went to France, you can go to Australia, you can go to New Zealand and they accept US trained surgeons in other countries. Wow. But US does not consider um, other foreign trained surgeons in the US in a similar way. One exception, Canada. So if you did your residency in Canada and you come to the United States and let's say you're a surgeon, but you want to do colorectal and you want to do a colorectal fellowship, you can get a fellowship in the US. And if you get board certified in the US for colorectal, you can practice in the US. So the only exception is really Canada. Wow. Now, what about your grandparents? Where, where, where were they born and raised? So my heritage, so that's uh, interesting. So my heritage is Persian or Iranian. Um, my, um, my, my mom and dad are both uh, Persian. Uh, my um, grandmother uh, was from the North, my grandmother on my mother, uh, father's side was from Turkish uh, side of the Southern part of Russia. And, uh, but the other three were all um, from that area where in I Iran exists. Um, and if you, I did my own genetic testing, just I want to make I sure. I just did mine recently. Did you do 23andMe or? I'd have to call my mom because I paid her to do it all and just had her, do, I, I don't, it was just some DNA and I had to do a spit test and it right, took right, a month right. or two. But uh, it was very, it was very diverse. So. So yeah, I was kind of concerned. I, I thought to myself, I better kind of check to see if I'm kind of purebred or I'm yeah. like, I've got all, you know, different. And actually it all came from that region of uh, Iran, Persia. Yeah. So mine was very constant. I didn't have any European blood. Uh, I did have like 1% from Northern Africa. So I was saying, oh, that's not bad. That explains part of my tan. Yeah. So, um, but, but, um, but, most of my family came, uh, obviously, heritage-wise from that area. And all my family uh, that was close to us has migrated to the United States. And most of my family right now is in, actually in California. Now, who was the most influential person on you when you were growing up? Who was that person that like really molded you into the man that you are today? Yeah, well, that's, I think my father. Um, so my father used to uh, take us to, our, to his clinic uh, when we were very young. And uh, I was very impressed by the fact that people would come. They were very grateful that, you know, they were taken care of. They were very appreciative. Um, I felt that there was a science behind it where you learned something and every time there was something different. So I think he was the most uh, influential person. And pretty much by the age of seven, I pretty much knew that I want to become a physician. Um, and yeah, and that, that was kind of my goal, you know, I, that was my target. I had no other desires for anything else. I didn't have any talent for music. I didn't have any talent for any artistry. Um, I liked uh, the science of medicine, how the body works. And when I started getting into it, I realized this was probably my calling. So that's, I think he was obviously highly influential. My parents really uh, didn't really uh, force us, 
or, uh, but I do think the fact that he was so enthusiastic about his work and his enthusiasm kind of um, percolated into my sense of existence that just made me want to do the same thing. That's really awesome. Now, I was doing research as we go back into medicine on top hospitals, and I was curious in regard to now the hospital that, now do you specifically do most of your work just through the Silver Cross Hospital in New Lenox? That's correct, yeah. Do you get invited to do work elsewhere or meet, like I don't know if there's like doctor meetings where like the top top individuals like yourself would meet, because I was looking at, I think number one on, on different lists, because there's, there's so many different sectors of, you, you've got so many different types of doctors that specialize in different things, so it's hard to say one is best for one thing, because there's so many different ones. But Northwestern Memorial, kept popping up and Mayo Clinic popped up and there was a, a, I think there was a doctor, a hospital in Switzerland as well, Sweden. Um, looks like Kar Karaslinka University. So, so you're going to get, you know, it depends, as you probably know the power of uh, uh, what I call the uh, Google uh, power of uh, uh, internet optimization. So many varies, yes. So there's a ways to do that. Um, you know, I would say that the audience should be cautious because you made a very good point. You know, I go to a doctor, I don't know about their background, I don't know about their training, I don't know if they're good. Now, most universities do a lot of great research and a lot of things that we learn comes from a lot of good research they've done for curing cancers, diagnosis, and treatments. But I'll give you a perfect example, robotic surgery. Robotic surgery did not start in university systems at all. In fact, they've been way behind. When, when patients come and see me, you know, obviously when you're in a community hospital and there's not a big sign on the door saying, hey, we're the giants and we're the best. I always tell patients, you know, when you're getting surgery, it's not where you get your surgery that matters, but it's who does your surgery. Yeah, that makes sense. So I didn't tell you the full detail of my existence for practice, but I started my first 10 years in, in a university system at University of California in San Diego. So I've been in academics. Then I left with my family and we were in a small rural hospital with 25 beds. I was in a rural setting where our town was 15,000 people in catchment of 50,000 lives. I was the only surgeon. I was doing deliveries. I was doing C-sections. I was, I was doing the jack of all trade in a little hospital in Illinois. And then finally moved to the suburbs of Chicago here in New Lenox. So I've been in a big institution, academia. I've been in a little hospital, 25 beds, and I've been in a community hospital. When people come and see me and they have a problem, I always tell them, you know, if you need surgery, it's important who does your surgery. If it's cancer surgery, it's important who does your cancer surgery. Your outcome is dependent on your surgeon, not mm -hmm. on where they practice. And it depends on how good they are, the kind of training they had. And that's really hard for you as a consumer looking around. I know, tried to I, look up top doctors. You can't. There wasn't a list of rankings. Say, no. where do you, how do you find? You, you gotta be connected. So insider information. Yeah, you gotta be connected. This is, this is you, you said it. There is no system in place in United States where you could look, look up the hospital, 
look up the doctors and find out there's no ranking what percentage yeah. of patients they've had mortalities mm -hmm. that died where's the percentage of their infection where's the percentage of their complications where's the percentage or where is the case mix they have like how complicated are they surgeries they're doing because sometimes you might be doing very complicated surgeries on very difficult cases you don't have that information available to you as a consumer you kind of you're kind of at the mercy. And, and it's kind of interesting because I get patients coming to my practice now saying, I said, I said you know, who sent you? And say, on the top, it says, was it your doctor? He said, no, I did my Google search and you had good, good reviews. And I go, oh my God, you know, here we go. Mm. You know, you could be the nicest person on the planet Earth, but if you don't know how to operate and you're doing really bad surgery, but yet you're so sweet about it, you can get really good reviews. I always tell patients, it's not, it's great to have great bedside manner, but the reality is you just really want to make sure you got somebody who can operate on yeah, you. Yeah, I want to live. Let's go to outcomes. So how do we gain access? Well, uh, that's in my line. If you call me and say, look, I want a good urologist and I need, I've got prostate issue. I need a Da Vinci robotic prostatectomy. I know who is surgeon might be best suited for you because I know how good they are technically and I see their outcome. So I can do a personal referral. So I think sometimes that's really your best bet of having uh, friends, okay. relationships with physicians and those physicians typically would be aware. Now, you might call your, for example, primary care doctor and ask for a physician that primary care doctor may not necessarily know your technical ability. So if you really need surgeon, I would say it's a good thing to have a surgeon friend, but a surgeon can find you the good orthopedic, the good urologist, the good ENT physician, the good gynecologist. Because within a community, even let's say, let's say for the sake of argument right now, uh, you wanna go to Florida and you're gonna move there and you need a surgeon there, right? Well, I can find through my connections in Florida, who is a good surgeon for a particular problem. Mm. And that inside information is really available through word of mouth, through insider communication, just like in any business, we know who is doing a good job and who's not doing a good job. How much of that is based on opinion of one person with another person and how much of it is really fact-based, if you will, performance-based? You know? when, I, when, I, when I try to do my search, I'm asking a colleague who works in that institution so I can find out how they are doing in that institution for all the patients they take care of. So it's, it's based on the factual observation of that particular surgeon in that institution. So that's really the only way. We don't have a system and maybe one day we can create a system to provide a higher degree of patient safety. Our patients need to be knowledgeable as to is operating on them. It's not just where you went to school. Let's face it. Let's say you went to Harvard, perfect example. Well, guess what? It's great school, difficult to get in, very high ranking, but is the surgeon who gets trained there is gonna come out as the best? Not necessarily. The reason is Harvard may have a lot of people who are fellows working there. So they allow the lower grade surgeons, the residents do less. So they may not have as much opportunity. Yet you might go to a hospital here in the house, in community here in Chicago, Mount Sinai. It's a community hospital 
It doesn't have the huge name recognition, but does tons of volume surgery. So the resident working that institution gets a lot of practical experience. Surgery is not just about your knowledge. It's about how much practical experience are you gonna get? It's like getting an electrician. You can have an electrician who's gonna be phenomenal. He's hardworking, he's decent, and he does great job. Or you can get a guy who comes in, he went to the best school, but just doesn't know what to do or what he's doing. And he has no experience. So it's, it's the same for every profession. And the same goes for medicine. There's a bell curve. They're the ones who are at the top, a lot in the middle, and quite a few at the bottom that you really want to avoid. This is so important. Yeah. I, yeah. I was mesmerized because I was, hospitals had rankings. You'd have little awards and accolades that, that doctors would receive, but there was no like ranking system. And I was like, that's weird because usually every industry incorporates some type of like some type of competitive system where it's like individuals can try to strive to compete with one another and it, and it drives production. Sales is very known for, for having these ranking systems, but I, I see it across other industries. There's, there's some type of ranking. And um, I was really, I was just, I was blown away. I was like, man, there's no, like, I was kept looking up top doctors in Illinois, top doctors in the world, top doctors. And I was like, there was no, it just had Google reviews. So, so let's talk about a little bit about top doctors because there's a magazine saying top doctors in X, Y, and Z. Well, guess what? How can you become a top doctor? It's not very difficult. You have two or three of your colleagues nominate you. Nominate. And you send a nice big check to that magazine. Yeah. Boom, you're a top doctor. Well, yeah. that's, that's, that's not really a true reflection of whether you're a top doctor. Um, I do think, though, um, as a surgeon, I think you'll find that word of mouth is the most powerful. If you have patients with very good outcomes, they will spread the word. Yes. And similarly, if you have a surgeon or a doctor who's not doing a good job, also with time, that surgeon's potential to succeed is gonna be diminished with time. Yes. So that's another factor. So that's why I think a lot of people rely on maybe health grades or Google reviews because they feel where other people had good experience. If you go to my reviews, you'll see maybe they might complain, well, they got a bill and I spend you know, only 20 minutes and they got an XY charge and somebody's upset, gives you one We tell star. people the same exact thing when you get into sales, because they're like, well, I looked at this other company's reviews and they weren't good. And I, I tell them immediately when they say that, I was like, you're gonna look at our reviews and you're gonna see a couple that aren't good as well. So if you're gonna judge on what company you're gonna decide to work with based off reviews, this may not be the best fit because there's, it's like the presidency. At any given time, half of the individuals aren't gonna be excited with the work that you're doing. And the other part, which I'm sure you know in your industry is that for a hundred people that come and see you, it is the ones that have the bad experience I should do the reviews. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. the 90% who had the most incredible time with you and were satisfied, they just feel they had a good time. They got the service they wanted. Yeah. But why should they bother even write anything unless they go way beyond? Yeah. Um, so that's the problem. There are more people who are unhappy about something and they're willing to share it with the world, yet the 90% who had the most incredible experience uh, just don't realize the importance of how important it is to spread their positive experience with everybody else. Now, I'm curious because you had mentioned uh, prostate. When when should men start taking uh, prostate serious? Like taking a prostate exam and, and just thinking about, all right, this is, you know, I know, especially I think as a, I'm, I'm half uh, half black, so half African American, so I don't know if uh, colon is it colon cancer that, or that uh, I don't know if it just affects black men or if I'm just like, 
just saying it off the top of my head, but I think just in general, when is that something you should start to consider? So, you know, for every, every cancer, um, we have what we call screenings. Uh, I'm not gonna profess to be the medical doctor who knows everything about all the screenings. I, my focus is GI, but I can tell you, for example, uh, women need to get pap smears for mm -hmm. cervical cancer a diagnosis. That actually needs to be started anytime at any age when they become active. Mm -hmm. Women, we used to say, well, they need to be 40. And then suddenly we, we said, well, maybe 45 and then 35. So again, mammogram to prevent breast cancer. We used to talk about getting your first colon check for colon polyps to prevent colon cancer at the age of 50. Now that's been dropped to 45. Mm. Same goes for prostate. When should we do it? Well, I've got to talk to a urologist, but 40, somewhere around there, is probably you should start getting your urologist checking your prostate, and then maybe definitely 50 in the 60s. You know, back in the old days, um, used to be that, you know, you go, you get your exam, and you get a blood test to see if your PSA is elevated for prostate. But prostate cancer treatment um, has gone under a tremendous revolution. Now, if you're diagnosed, sometimes they watch you. When you're diagnosed, they may decide that it's probably surgery an option, or they may decide radiation is an option. And when radiation is an option, they might say, well, you might need proton therapy. So prostate cancer treatment is going through a major change on what should be done because there is no one solid way of saying, here's the problem, this is the one in treatment, and that's it. For colon cancer, you got a tumor, it's in your colon, it needs to come out. The debate for that is very limited. Mm -hmm. But there are certain diseases, so with every cancer, there are certain guidelines established by all the different societies. But as a general rule, that's the role of the medical doctor, sitting down, going and check marking. If you're a female, you need your mammogram, you need your colon check, you need maybe pap smear. Of course, at a certain age, we, can't, we don't have to worry about that risk. But those are the things that we need to kind of be cognizant about. So I would say also depends on your family history. Is there mom, dad with cancer history? What are your risk factors? Because if you smoke, you drink, you're overweight, you're increased risk. So you have to take all these into consideration. One thing I have to say, in the past decade, we're seeing more and more people who are younger coming with diagnosis of cancer. So what is that due to? Probably diet. We're eating more processed food. The patients are get, becoming larger. Obesity is a risk factor for all types of cancer, breast, colon, you know, so we're seeing more. We're seeing more esophageal cancer. 30 years ago, we didn't see as many esophageal cancers. We're seeing more and more of those. Why is that in the past 30 years? So we're seeing more of cancers. Melanoma, melanoma has been on an increase, especially in women. So. Um, there's just a lot of cancers that are now becoming more apparent, more common, and more in younger people. Wow. Don't okay. wait until you have symptoms, because once you have symptoms, that's too late. I get my blood work done probably once a quarter, so I'm, I'm hyper-curious. I, I think I'd rather be proactive than reactive. One thing that I've noticed is, uh, are you familiar with bilirubin? Yes. So my bilirubin levels are just slightly higher than they should be, but uh, the doctors I've met with are it's a family thing, but it's still something to like watch because it's related to the liver. That's correct. Right? Is there anything that you suggest on like naturally reducing bilirubin level? So, I don't drink, I yeah. smoke cigars. Yeah, so cigars is not gonna do it. 
um, there's a condition where there might be a slight elevation of the bilirubin that does has to do with the way the liver metabolizes a certain enzyme. That by itself is not a concern. So slight elevation is not. However, you know, I always tell my patients, you gotta do everything in moderation. It's okay, for example, I give you an example. Um, let's say you got a high cholesterol um, and you have two choices. You can either change your diet or you can, you know, consider, you know, eating less fatty foods. But let's say you see your doctor, you decide you don't want to change your diet that much, and then he tells you you got to take medication. Well, guess what? Red wine, perfect example. One glass of red wine has the capability of reducing your cholesterol and bringing your LDL or HDL, those good and bad cholesterol levels, to the appropriate levels. This is not something new. And you wonder, hmm, cardiovascular disease is actually not as prevalent in France and Italy. Why? They drink quite a bit of wine. And that's not even considered drinking. I'm not suggesting people go out there and start buying red wine and start drinking a bottle every night, but that can have a protective effect. So one glass of wine. So th there are certain things you can be proactive about. Good nutrition. Cheese, for example, you know, eat a lot of cheese, you might not have as much cavities. Well, why is that? Because cheese has a lot of probiotics and that by itself is very helpful in prevention uh, or reducing the chances of developing cavities. You, you look very fit, so I'm not worried about you. I have a feeling you eat well. What is eating well? You know, people say, oh, I should go all vegan. Well, of course, if you can go all vegan, that's probably the best, but that's not reality. You gotta have your protein, you gotta have your carbohydrates, you gotta have your greens, and you gotta have your vegetables and fruits. You have a mix of that on your regular normal diet, you will do well. Mm -hmm. It's the extremes that causes the problem. Yeah. It's the extremes. So everything moderation is gonna be okay. Is it true, um, I've been wanting to ask a medical doctor this, um, is there a conspiracy to keep Americans sick to keep Americans on prescription drugs because there's a lot of money. It's billions of dollars in treatment. Is that a myth? Is that a conspiracy theory? Or there's a certain element of truth to that? Can you comment on that? Uh, we can comment on that for hours. And uh, I, I, I don't call it a conspiracy. I call it there is an element of greed mm. in our society. Yes. In fact, I think there are a lot of conditions that do not need to be managed medically. Uh, let me give you a perfect example. Uh, people develop heartburn. And before you know it, they go and they have some evidence of inflammation and they're put on these prescription drugs for reducing the acid, you know, whether it's protonics or meprazole. And guess what? It's a big industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And would you know that taking these drugs for long-term, which patients sometimes do, can give them kidney failure, can give them heart attack. There is some potential association with dementia, nutritional deficiency, vitamin deficiencies. Um, there are a lot of osteoporosis. So there are a lot of long-term side effects from every medication that we take. Now, nobody is going to come and dispute that because the industry is constantly pushing doctors, invites, lectures, uh, payouts, 
to keep them at bay so the public is not aware of the potential dangers. So you're absolutely right. That's true. It is completely true that there are a number of industries, drug industries is notorious. You seem old enough to be of the generation, not Tristan, but there was a time they used to say, if you smoke cigarettes, it's good for you. That was a little before my time, but not much before. I remember so, smoking was- Was fashionable. Yes. It was fashionable. That was the thing. It was the thing. Yep. It's good for you. You're not gonna die. Mm -hmm. Before finally there was major lawsuits. Mm -hmm. We went through that. We went through asbestos. We've gone through, oh, oh, oh we that. went through, by the way, we went through Oxycontin. That's right. It's good for you. It's not addictive. It's good. Yeah. What about it, the Adderall? I hear about kids being subscribed to Adderall, and oh I, my God. I've got so many theories of I've, I lost a friend to uh, mental illness, but I, he was prescribed Adderall as a as a young kid in middle school, or you know, or, you know what school. I mean, and yeah. he got so addicted to it, he started crushing him up, and you, you know, you know, one of the things that I find most disappointing is the fact that um, I think all of us we're very high functioning people. I think if we were diagnosed you know, God knows when, uh, recently they would probably put us on Adderall. I, I was notorious for that. My dad, we used to say, you know, I took all these videos of you and you're such a hyperactive kid. You were running around, you were jumping trees. Kids are active. We yeah. run around, we wanna be active. We, we have a lot of energy to burn. And sometimes this hyperactivity gets translated into some disease process. You see somebody and before you know it, you're on medication. Yeah, You're absolutely right. I think there's overuse of medication. We need to understand truly what's really, truly normal. What is normal? Yeah. There's a spectrum. Some kids don't do very much. Some kids are at the extreme, but that's normal for that kid. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of overuse of medication. And you have the reverse with the depression medications and their side effects because they have almost, there's this duality where the Adderall, if you're on it, you're, you find a balance and you find an up and then you reverse into the depression and then you find yourself down, but then you can't find yourself finding that downtime if you're not on that. So, exactly. and it's the side effects long-term, they kind of uh, parlay into what I'm also curious about, like just with our sales force, because we have a young, we have a young um, organization and a young business and it makes me think, how will my business be affected from 10 or 15 years from now? Because vaping didn't start until when I graduated high school in 2017, and I didn't get impacted by that. But now if I walk out in my office, everybody's got an electric smokestick and they say they're, those are more uh, dangerous or not more dangerous, but those are more um, toxic and they have more nicotine than you know an individual cigarette. And they're all day, you know, he might have one back there right now. You got one of <laughs> a vape stick. And I'm thinking like, we don't have any studies on them because they've been, the vapes have only been around for four or five years. So we don't know the long-term effect of the vapes. And I'm sitting here thinking like, well, I wonder in 10, 15 years, what percentage of my business is gonna be affected by these vapes? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, it's a completely unregula unregulated industry. The nicotine level is extremely high and they're extremely potent. And they not only have the addictiveness, but also they have incredible side effects on even as a human on your GI system, yeah. not to mention the other systems, but uh, you're absolutely right. It's a completely unregulated, we're gonna see you know, we went through a period where we had smoking, we had lung cancer, we still do. Now we're gonna go through this um, um, transition of, of unregulated poisons. The synthetic uh, chemicals in there. Synthetic chemicals, we've got the vapes, we've got now the legalization of 
marijuana and everybody seems to be on it and it's like, it's okay. Well, not quite. There are a lot of short-term and long-term side effects. We yeah. see that every day. Yes. Of marijuana. I've so I have read, cause I've been curious in regard to marijuana. Um, I have read that it does affect your endocrine system. It's pretty much inevitable that it will affect your testosterone. And obviously as a man, if you lower your testosterone, it's- Heart disease. It's yeah, it's not, it's not good. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of side effects. We see, it, for example, in my practice, um, you know, one of the GI systems that I deal with is the pancreas. We, we see a higher incidence of pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas. It affects that. And then these patients develop, or, uh, or individuals develop chronic lack of function of pancreas. They end up with diarrhea. They have malabsorption, they have malnutrition. Not to mention the fact the impact on their memory, not only short-term, but potentially long-term. Yeah. So I think we've gotta be really cautious. I think there is, but don't get me wrong, I, I'm really about natural stuff. I'm really actually into holistic stuff. For yeah. example, mm -hmm. one holistic element that's really maybe underutilized is acupuncture. Yeah, I tried uh, it. You know, that's a real science. It's, you have neuro, neural fibers, and if you stimulate it enough, it can give you pain relief. That's a well-known fact. So um, marijuana has a role. If you've got terminally cancer patients, they're nauseated, they don't have an appetite. Look, you've got a dying patient and they're suffering, and if there's no real pill, that's synthetically made that can help them, and that can absolutely. Yeah, you should, but but not for. I'm strongly against recreational elements of it on a habitual basis. Now, you want to do it once in a blue moon and have a little experience. Okay, people are human. Um, one thing I would recommend uh, nobody ever tries because I've seen this in my practice when I was younger and working part time in an emergency room. Young people doing cocaine you can get incredible cardiac arrhythmia, boom. Your heart goes into a rapid heartbeat and you can have sudden death. Yeah. So, you know, this is one of those things, oh, I've done it a hundred times, I should be fine. Well, that's good, but it takes only one time and it's gonna be your first time. Why risk it? Yeah. Why put yourself in that situation? So I'm strongly against certain drugs that can give you actually spontaneous death and cocaine is one of them. Well, and especially, you know what I mean, my, I was, lucky to be raised by a phenomenal mother and she always would just show me any type of drug and uh and just say like if you do this and then show me some crazy picture of someone like dead or something like you know what i mean just a scary <laughs> that's, that's, so that's I was, a very good tactic i was <laughs> scared of everything every like even pills i'd be worried i'd be like oh my mom told me this will kill me and uh so i, I was scared of everything but i think of cocaine and just uh, you know individuals i've seen pass away and you know, just friends as well, you know, overdosing and passing away as I've, I've grown up now and, and become a young man. Um, you don't, you can't trust anybody nowadays. Even with marijuana, you can't trust people because they, they mix stuff up. So it's like, I think if people are, you know, doing some type of drug, I would trust the, the medical field. I don't know of any states, maybe Oregon distributes cocaine. I think they have like, I don't think anything's regular. Oregon? Is or, Oregon? I don't, I don't I don't think, I'm not aware, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I, there's some uh, states that like, pretty much they distribute everything. Oregon, I think gives you, like you might be able to go in and, and yeah, if you have a have license. To, yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely difference between state law and federal law. But, oh yeah. But uh, I, I I have to do some research on that. I, I don't keep up to date with the distribution and the legality of every state. Neither do but, I. But, but needless to say, um, this change in our perception, mm -hmm. going from something that's illegal to 
legalizing it is is has been uh, a, a big mistake. Yeah, I think sure it brings some money for the state and it really helps maybe the wheels turn. But you know we we got to protect our young generation I to agree. avoid these. Uh, and I think being proactive. I think when I when I do the research on what's the what kills the most people in the world, I believe it's cardiovascular disease, and that would directly correspond with diet. Correct. Absolutely. So, so be, I, I, you can't. You can only be reactive for so long until, you know. I wonder what it would take for the world to start being proactive. Kind of like with what Dave mentioned is like, when are we going to start preaching about water intake and your environment? Like, I really try not to put fluoride into my body. I would love if I was way wealthier to minimize um, the plasticity around me as well. Because I, I heard a podcast about phthalates and how they affect the endocrine system, and they just kind of. Microplastics and different things that can just kind of tear you up, and you probably see that in the GI system when those microplastics, if they build up. Well, I don't. We can see it on the microscope, so there's no question. And we have a real serious problem with our plastic. You can see it under the microscope. Under uh, microscopes, absolutely. There's there are microplastics, or yeah. it's inevitable. So, so we have it everywhere, and you know, it's interesting you bring that concept up because um, there, you know, we we need to do a better job of not only eliminating, but doing a better job of recycling and avoiding throwing them left and right in, in our backyards. And I think, you know, that's going to be our curse because, you know, um, they're being thrown into the oceans and we consume a large quantity of fish, uh, whether it's yes. this country or other countries. Uh, and we're really destroying ourselves by- From the inside become, out. By not being more conscious about uh, controlling our environment. I hired a nutritionist maybe six months ago from Cleveland, works with the Cleveland Cavaliers, phenomenal job. I paid a good amount of money just to get, just to do a, you know, a couple phone calls with this, this lady, just for her to tell me, only eat foods with one or two ingredients. If you don't understand the ingredients, don't eat the food. I'm just sitting here thinking like my mom and sister have been telling me this forever. But we, we ran, I did my blood work with her as well. And she said, what, what, there was an indicator of, I didn't even realize that the nonstick cooking pans have some type of chemical that that can actually you're subjected to when you're cooking in those nonstick pans. Mm -hmm. Like unless you're using like a good cast iron pan, even then you have microscopic metals now going into your body. But there's just so many things. I'm just blown away. I'm like, man, you got to go live in the wilderness and and just live off of what God's created no, to really protect yeah. your internal you, being. You do. You know. Yeah. You know. We've. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, you know. Uh, we've been doing recently in our families that uh, we, we've been during summers when now we grow our stuff tomatoes yes and, that's the long-term vision for me and, and you know you avoid chemicals it's yes. all natural to an extent you know, though to an extent because but, the the airplanes you know what I mean so now you've got the spray and we've got the spray we've got all those uh, dioxin we've got all the chemicals we've got all the refineries yeah. you're absolutely look there's it's it's hard to avoid <laughs> to avoid it all yeah it's hard because eventually they're going to get into our greens. Yeah. Uh, but at least there are measures to prevent it. You know? Yes. So I think to some degree, trying to go a little bit more organic, um, certain foods, it really makes sense. Yeah. Um, but you are absolutely right. I mean, uh, what we put in our bodies is highly responsible. We're doing more, we're doing more processed food than we ever did. Dave said, you know, there's a conspiracy by these drug companies. I think there's also conspiracy by the meat industry. Yes. I mean, they're promoting meat like it's it's a good thing for you. And if you go to the American Society for the Heart Association, they've got all these menus with all these meats on it. I mean, that's contradictory. I mean, that's not the kind of stuff we want mm. to feed our cardiac patients or potential 
patients with cardiovascular disease. And they just so the they, more plant based we are, the better off we're going to be. But it's 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 hard. Who doesn't like a ribeye steak? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I've got to have one once in a while. But is I it eat really, a lot. Is it, but is it good for me? Probably not as good as it should be. But we have an addiction to meat. We have an addiction to sugar. You know, sugar is ten times more addictive than cocaine. So we've developed these um, tastes, and it's hard to kick them. My sister said she read a study that other countries describe dementia and Alzheimer's as type three diabetes. So I don't know if that's too true, but you know, she's always trying to check me on my sugar because she's like, man, it looks, it looks like a lot of diseases lead back to sugar. And I've also read like different cases of like cancer patients just cutting out sugar and it helping. I, I don't know it's, if it's just it's, theoretical, but like. No, no, that's, that's true. So we, um, I deal with a lot of patients, obviously diagnosed with cancer, with its colon, esophageal, uh, gastric, pancreatic, uh, I deal with that. Um, I actually discourage my patients uh, to be taking any sugar. In fact, I go through their diet. I ask them, in fact, I don't know if many surgeons actually do this, if they sit down and actually, I specifically ask them, give me a rundown of what do you have for breakfast? What are you having for dinner, lunch? And, and, and tell me what your vices are. And, and before you know it, you're absolutely right. You listen to, oh my God, this is the worst diet I ever heard. It's like, cut this out, cut this out, cut this out. I mean, I tell them, forget about the case, forget about the cookies, forget about the sugars, um, you know, meat. Well, you know, we talk about, well, what, what should we do? Should we do all fish based? Because meat, we already discussed. You know, there's no one single meat that I'm gonna say is the best, but if you're gonna do probably more emphasis on fish than other types of meat. But if you can really go plant-based, that's the most ideal. Ideal plant-based proteins. And, and nutritional support is probably the best. And there's a good amount of study that that's probably really the way we should be considering our diets. We're trying to go that way, but as I think we're making the conscious decision because you're, you're educating yourself tremendously. You're seeking a nutritionist, you're getting all this information and that's great. But I don't think everybody feels that way or wants to be that way. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to take a lot of time to educate people about the importance of these changes. You know, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I had another personal issue that I uh, kind of experienced. I went to an urgent care a week ago or so, and uh, I do jujitsu. It's like wrestling, yes. but it's submission-based wrestling. And I developed a folliculitis, which is like a, right, like right. a staph infection, and I got prescribed um, antibiotics. But now you're going on almost probably two months of two, three months of inconsistent antibiotics. And I just noticed in the last couple of days, a nausea, and I'm hoping it was some type of stomach bug or something that had, had gone around, but I was curious, when, when is it a concern um, from patients that you see that have, have been prescribed antibiotics for so long um, that you know, maybe they develop some type of you know, gastro uh, issues? Yeah, so that's a great question. That's another abuse. You know, back in the old days, if you went to the emergency room, you had a cold, and if the doctor didn't give you antibiotics, you would say, oh, that was a bad doctor. I didn't get anything, right? Yeah. Uh, we've, we've created uh, a culture that we expected pills. In fact, I remember when my grandmother, uh, God rest her soul, you go into the kitchen and there'll be all these bottles with prescription on them. 
And I said, Grandma, why do you have so many medication? And you look at them and they were all different types. So her concept was if she went to a doctor and she didn't get a prescription, that was a bad doctor. Yeah. So we had this philosophy that anytime you went to a doctor, you got to get a prescription. And it was so very common. And we thought antibiotics are not a big deal. Now we have resistant organisms. Now we have drugs that, the superbugs that we can't even treat. And we have people dying as a result. But more importantly, you said something really important about the GI system. When you take antibiotics, you're gonna kill a lot of good bacteria in your gut. Yeah. Boom. Your sheer existence and health is 100%. This is a strong statement. A lot of people out there are not gonna agree with me, including doctors. 100% of your existence is dependent on your gut bacteria. Yeah. We have a big word for it, we call it the microbiome, where all these different bacteria and different combination mixes determines your state of well-being. Wow. When that's disturbed, you can end up having diarrhea, you can have inflammatory bowel disease, you can develop diverticulitis, you can develop cancer. So guess what? Maybe the reason we're seeing all these changes with allergies, people coming with eczema, what do you think that happened? You destroyed your gut bacteria. So when you do that, if you ask me, uh, I, you know, I'm a pretty old guy now, I would tell you maybe in my past 10 years or 20 years, maybe I've taken antibiotics in 20 years five times. Yeah, same here. Only five. I, mm. will, I will get a virus and I'll tough it out with the chicken, old-fashioned chicken noodle soup, with the old-fashioned honey, with the old-fashioned lemon. Can you just lemon. stop taking the antibiotic? Yeah, yes. So, you know, I would ask the question, is your folliculitis, for example, that's a perfect example. Folliculitis is just a hair follicle infection. Yeah. Well, how bad is it? Do you have so much redness, your scalp's gonna fall off? Or is it a little pustule and it's gonna drain by itself? Yeah. You're a young guy, your immune system should be able to take care of it. Yeah. I would not ordinarily consider to be very aggressive even when I see patients. So a patient comes in, which I, I don't see that many medical conditions like colds, uh, but I'm, I'm very resistant to giving antibiotics as first line. I will try all modalities and only reserve antibiotics when absolutely necessary. So, but you are right. There's a lot of misuse and abuse and antibiotics which kill the good bacteria in your gut. And then what, what happens to people? For example, for you, I would say, as soon as you're done with your antibiotics, you better start taking some good multi-probiotics to replenish all that bacteria that you've lost back into your gut. But you should finish the antibiotics. Yeah, because it's kind of like you're putting probiotics and then killing the same bacteria that you're putting back in. Yeah. So it's kind of counterproductive, but you wanna replenish yourself and you continue to do that. Um, and you continue to do it as long as then you feel like your gut system is getting back to normal. Yeah. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, this is- well, I'm worried, I haven't had an appetite in probably two days. I've had to force myself to eat and I'm just thinking to myself, wonder if these antibiotics have just kind of, I've heard uh, just weird stories about antibiotics just like destroying the you, gut. You, not only that, but you can get super infections, a condition called C. difficile colitis. So Clostridium difficile is a bacteria that becomes overgrown with bacterial usage and people can actually get hospitals and even die from that situation. So yes, antibiotics have been very incredibly useful in our medical environment but they have potentially very serious side effects. 
and only should be taken when absolutely necessary. And when they are taken, you should consider doing some probiotics to replenish your good bacteria. If you're not feeling good, you know, from obesity, from depression, from uh, diarrhea to constipation to any ailment, eczema, rashes, allergies, it's all driven by your gut bacteria. And that's what we're discovering. And there's a huge amount of science going behind uh, scientists who are doing research to find out what combination is going to give you the best optimum treatment. And even sometimes for very bad gastroenteritis or diarrhea of C. diff, we have now stool pills for you. We took Dave's stool, processed it, put it in a pill and give it to you to replenish the good bacteria in your system. So that's called fecal transplant, you know, putting poop in somebody else's gut. I know it sounds great. Safe. Yes, actually it is. Um, it is safe. It is safe mm -hmm. and it's commercially available. I oh. know, who would have thought one day you'll Jeez. be having poop pills. Yes, exactly. someone else's poop. <laughs> exactly, somebody else's, somebody mm -hmm. healthy though. So mm -hmm. absolutely, so that's, these are some of the treatments that are ongoing now. We're realizing how important your poop is. Mm. And if your poop is bad, we give somebody else's poop. That's actually good. And these are the new, new modalities of treatment for some of these resistant infections that people are getting and dying from. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah. I, think, I feel like we can talk to you for Forever. hours. You're a very easy guy to talk to. I think for a guy that's as accomplished as you are, honestly, it's just your balanced perspective on this and your open-mindedness. Honestly, it's you're a pretty good. Well, I appreciate person. it. Thank you. Hey, it's been really a pleasure. Are. You you took me to a different domain. I mean, I wish I could go on for hours in my specialty and talk about mm -hmm. surgeries and all the different forms. But you've you've basically I didn't realize you tested me on a lot of medical stuff that is should be common knowledge to a lot of people out there. And I'm really passionate about this because part of my practice is not just doing surgery. It's actually treating patients with GI ailments. So if they got diarrhea, they've got constipation, they've got nausea, they've got vomiting. Um, I, I deal with that. I'm fascinated by the fact what we put in ourselves and how we take care of ourselves influences our well-being. So Tristan, congratulations. At such a young age, you're being so proactive. And I love, you know, obviously I know uh, some of the members of your staff here and they're very active. And, and I know for a fact you've been very instrumental, not only learning yourself, but preaching to your juniors and your colleagues here on the goodness of, of good health, yeah. exercise, good eating, proper diet, you know, all these elements that are just so important for your well-being. You know, we're not saying let's live to be 120. Let's, let's not do that. <laughs> but let's live the longest we can in the healthiest state. Yes. Because right. nothing is more miserable that you live to about 90, but you're totally crippled by the ailments that are just plaguing you and you become dependent on everybody else. Yeah. So yes. let's lead a very healthy life so you, we can have a, a graceful aging process. Absolutely. I feel like we can have you back for several segments on several topics. Like yeah. you will be the AK Media doctor, team yeah. doctor here. So I got some questions for you when we get off. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's anything else I wanted to ask. You know, I, I, the only other thing I had in my notes was medical device uh, purchases. Do you approve that or is there a board or do you just say, I like this equipment and then the hospital has to approve it? Uh, yeah, so there's a process, you know, like anything else, God, I wish I could, you know, go to the administrator and say, 
here's a new toy, it came out, I think I want it. I think we do an analysis. First, we want to make sure that this is a, a technology that's going to be useful. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to ask, what are the usefulness? And then we're going to ask, is it safe? So if it's yet, if, if it's useful, if it's safe, and it's going to make us to do a better job, I've been very, very lucky. So I can tell you, uh, Silver Cross Hospital is a small 350-bed hospital. We're not that huge. It's a good size. But the administration, the people who work there look at this and they truly, truly are interested in making the lives of the people in our community in the southwest suburbs better. Um, some of the toys that we've been asking for are really expensive. And sometimes they don't make money. Let's face it, in order to survive, you got to have some positive margin. But they're really interested in saying, if it makes a difference and if it's going to be good for our patients, we'll get it, and then we'll deal with the money aspect later. Mm -hmm. So the answer is yes, it is possible, but at our institution, you'll find in other institutions, there may be a lot of red tape or a lot of layers to go through. At our institution, there are not that many layers. It's just one layer. You have a, you have a technology, you think it's useful. For example, uh, back in the old days, let's say you get a chest X-ray now, and you got a nodule in your lung. Well, back in the old days, somebody had to stick a needle in it and then your lung collapses, right? And then Jesus, now put a tube in your chest. But guess what? We bought a technology that's robotic, made by Da Vinci, goes through the airway, goes all the way into the peripheral area, do a little biopsy, get a tissue, and we come back and we can get a diagnosis without causing any complication. So again, the technology costs a lot of money, but it seemed a better way to take care of the patients. Uh, because previously when we stuck your lung through the needle, that also yeah. paid a lot of good money to the hospital for the insurance. But the hospital realized maybe there's a better way. And we actually are one of the biggest centers, believe it or not, in, I think, in Chicagoland that are, are making diagnosis of lung cancer with this technology wow. through the Da Vinci system. Yeah. Minimal invasiveness. Yeah. Like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What's the, we'll wrap with this. What's the most common surgery you do? Gallbladder. And hernias. Gallbladder, Gallbladder and, her and hernias and then colon surgery. What does that what does that average cost when they run that through their health insurance? What is that? Um, well for the patients the cost, well, there's the surgeon's fee. That's usually not that costly. Um, you know, they get a bill at home for about maybe seven or eight thousand dollars, and then there's insurance will pick up, you know, there's the the, the element called Right off, where the insurance will only pay, say, the hospital, say, 4000 something like that. And then eventually, you know, um, that patient ends up paying a few hundred dollars, maybe to a couple of thousand. But as you know, every patient or every individual has a different types of insurance. Yeah, yeah, the insurance. It could varies. be medical, it could be uh, Medicare, or it could be private insurance where they have a high deductible, road deductible. But um, so it depends. For every person, depending on what they're getting, it could be variable, but usually it's not uh, a surgery that will break, break the bank yeah. for gallbladder surgery or abdominal hernias. Colon surgery tends to be more expensive. Orthopedic surgeries tend to be more expensive because they use special screws, special technology, and special instrumentation. Um, so that tends to be a little bit more obviously expensive. Cardiac surgery, you could run up to thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars for the cost, or not cost, but charges. But then again, that's you know, it's Depends a lot of equipment, yeah. a lot of you know, technology being utilized 
to take care of a patient that needs a heart bypass. Absolutely. Well, again, uh, Dr. Gamagami, this was phenomenal. Uh, Thank you. Probably one of my favorite podcasts so far. Me too. You know, this year. So, you know, incredible insight. And we're excited to, uh, you know, get you on in the years to come. And we're very grateful. You did a phenomenal job with your son who brings a tremendous amount of value to our business. And um, I think that's it. No, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great having you being here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Another episode of Adversity Kings. We'll see you guys later. Bye.